good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2016 University of Edinburgh Gifford Lecture Series. Uh, my name is Joe Shaw. I hold the Salveson Chair in European Institutions, and I'm the director of the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, and I'm a member of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. Uh, I'm delighted this evening to welcome back our eminent speaker, Professor Catherine Tanner Marquand, Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School, as she continues her series on the theme, Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. This evening, Professor Tanner will deliver her third lecture, which is entitled, Total Commitment. The lecture this evening is being recorded and the video will shortly be available online on the University of Edinburgh's Gifford Lectureships web pages. I now have great pleasure in handing you over to Professor Catherine Tanner. Thanks so much, Professor Shaw. Let me get out my throat lozenges so they'll be immediately available. The intense effort I talked about last time, required to meet the demands of finance-dominated capitalism, means little if corporations and creditors can't find people willing to expend it. Willingness on the part of employees, for example, to expend such effort cannot be taken for granted. It becomes something that corporate management, corporate management itself actively tries to promote. Indeed, in service to a finance-backed interest in maximum profitability, corporations demand not just maximum intensity of effort, but maximum intensity of commitment to such effort. Workers themselves are to want, that is, nothing more than what corporations ask of them. Their own desires are to be brought into complete compliance with finance-dominated corporate interests and their productivity thereby increased. By way of such convergence, all critical distance on what finance-dominated capitalism requires of people disappears. How can one criticize what has become the desire of one's own heart? Industrial capitalism typically induced hard work by compensating it. One is willing to do whatever is asked of one in exchange for secure employment at good pay with benefits. Finance-dominated corporations typically cannot induce hard work in those ways. They downside their workforce whenever expedient in order to increase prof uh, corporate profitability and are very reluctant to share profits with their workers since any such sharing will have an immediately adverse effect on profit margins. Instead, finance-dominated organizations use these very features of their management practices, their production, their production of worker insecurity, that is, to, to induce worker compliance through fear. Where capitalism monopolizes the means to subsistence and there are no other viable ways of making a living, capitalism always uses fear to, to motivate worker compliance. One complies with what one's employer asks because one is afraid of the alternative, having one's pay doctor losing one's job. Finance-dominated capitalism ratchets up such fears by its usual management practices of maximizing profits through payroll cost-cutting. Every employee knows that he or she can be fired at some point or turned into some form of contingent worker at reduced pay and benefits. Employees come and go all the time, and such contingent employees, part-timers, independent contractors, and full-time temps are often one's co-workers. 
The implied threat is therefore always quite salient. Moreover, the penalties for failure to comply under finance-dominated capitalism become more extreme. Austerity measures enforced by international holders of national debt hollow out welfare provision, as we've seen. Losing one's job could very well mean living on the street, chronically hungry and exposed to the elements, like the poor people one passes every day on the way to and from work. Compliance out of fear <clears throat> is not, however, optimal from the profit-maximizing ma viewpoint of finance-dominated capitalism because it brings with it no guarantee of effectiveness in and of itself. Conformity through fear suggests a certain reluctance, other things being equal. One might very well, as Bartleby uh, annoyingly affirmed, prefer not to. When induced by fear, compliance can be measured more, can be assured, moreover, only with constant work surveillance, thereby adding monitoring costs to the usual labor expenses of corporations. Such surveillance can be done quite cheaply through the use of computerized technologies with ability, for example, to count every keystroke and continually, continually track reaction times. Surveillance tasks can also be delegated to employees themselves without adding further layers of management. Peer group pressure within teamwork has this effect. Self-auditing can also be mandated, although the time and effort required to do that auditing itself cuts down on worker productivity and is arguably always less than effective because left at least partially to the discretion of potentially disgruntled employees. Similar problems of, of assuring compliance beset inducement of effort through external reward. Employees are willing to put up with a task they'd otherwise prefer not to perform because of what their wages will get them, the consumer goods that promise to satisfy desires that fundamentally have nothing to do with work. Like fear, the always potentially, I'd otherwise prefer not to, character of a utilitarian approach to work brings with it, however, the same monitoring costs. Without continual supervision, it's impossible to be sure that workers are in fact doing what they're being asked to do. Efforts to maximize, maximize profit by payroll cost-cutting also, also work against the success of such inducements. Employees are not being paid well enough to make all this effort on the job worth their while. The goods that might compensate them for their effort become too expensive for them to buy. One might also suspect, <coughs> with Daniel Bell's famous argument in the cultural, his book, Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, that compliance with corporate demands for utilitarian reasons is constantly being undermined <clears throat> by the contrary character of the very pursuit of consumer goods that is supposed to motivate it. Just because the work one does is not considered intrinsically satisfying, a utilitarian approach to work for the, stake, for the sake of external reward presumes the ability to defer gratification. One has to learn to wait until one's paid and can go out and buy what brings enjoyment after all the work is done. A consumer mentality, to the contrary, encourages the pursuit of immediate gratification. Buy it now, enjoy it now, be happy at once. At work, one submits, however grudgingly, to the demands of others, while at the store, one is encouraged to revel in the free play of impulse, and so on. The threat to productivity and profit, 
posed by the mismatch between what workers left to their own devices would prefer to be doing and what the company is asking them to do at work can be circumvented in a couple of ways, both increasingly common within finance-dominated capitalism. Rather than struggle to bring the always potentially recalcitrant desires of worker, workers into line with company mandates, what can institute work processes that have the effect, at least at work, of evacuating all such potentially contrary impulses and desires from workers' minds. The task in front of one has to be addressed right away and is so difficult to perform in the time allowed that it requires one's complete attention. No time for daydreaming then about what one would rather be doing or the pleasures that might await one after work. An even more extreme form of self-evacuation can be had by work processes that promote and enforce a nearly machinic reactivity from workers. Their work at hand pushes out not just thought of anything else, but thought per se. Reflection itself would inhibit performance of the task at hand, which requires one simply to react as quickly as possible in the appropriately scripted way to the changing stimuli of, stimuli of inputs that constantly come one's way. Workers become nothing more than a call center. Call centers would be a good example of this. Workers become nothing more than a kind of blank interface or surface of contact where customer and service provision meet. The inputs you are being given are mere signals, refusing all further interpretation or thought. Discipline and conformity comes about here by way of a certain kind of self-renunciation. One doesn't conform by struggling to bring one's own will into line with a superior will or market demand. The latter is simply to replace one's own will. It becomes, for all intents and purposes at work, the only will one has. But the major way that finance-dominated capitalism deals with the lurking threat to productivity and profit of any disparity between what workers want and what companies want from them is simply to do everything possible to close the gap. Workers are, are to be encouraged to want for themselves what the company wants. Ideally, the two, sets of uh, the two sets of desire, of the worker on the one hand and the company on the other, should be brought into complete alignment. Were such a convergence to be achieved, workers would never be doing as they are told reluctantly, simply because they want to get something else by way of that compliance or thereby avoid unpleasant penalties for failing to do so. Working in, the company, working in the way the company wants would be instead the primary object of one's own desires, in and of itself the primary means of satisfying them. Since workers would only be doing as they like in complying with company dictates, secondary measures to assure that compliance, monitoring costs, could ideally be cut to the bone. And rather than struggling to turn human beings into machine-like, thoughtlessly reactive automatons through work processes that encourage practices of self-evacuation and self-renunciation, companies could leave workers alone to do as they see fit. They could grant them the autonomy of their own self-directed actions. Finding value oneself in the work one is asked to do is something that the old Protestant work ethic supplied. One could count on the hard work of one's employees because they found satisfaction themselves in doing so. Workers who work for work's sake are not, however, especially self-directing. 
they need to be told what to do, thereby incurring, if not monitoring costs, a host of managerial ones. The Protestant work ethic is no doubt in part for this reason associated with the unadventurously obedient company man within highly developed bureaucracies that effectively transfer direction in step-by-step -step fashion down from the top. Workers conforming to a Protestant work ethic can take pleasure in the successful per performance of whatever it is that they've been told to do by others. They take a certain pleasure in following the lead of others. The satisfactions from doing so falling closely upon and remaining internal to conformity with company demands at work. Finance-dominated corporations save on costs of both monitoring and directing employees by requiring them instead to take responsibility themselves for decision-making within parameters set by top management. They are to be self-moving, taking the initiative themselves to deal effectively with the changing demands of a fast-paced fast market. The Protestant work ethic, moreover, is as vulnerable as any inducement to hard work is that involves both overt submission to the will of others and deferred gratifi gratification. Waiting patiently for the rewards of hard work at work, incremental pay raises and promotions over the course of a long career that loyal submission to one's employers brings, seems at cross purposes with a life one is encouraged to leave outside of work through the constant lure of easy credit and incessant advertising. Under finance-dominated capitalism, the character of pursuit of one's desires, whether at work or outside it, is taken to be much the same. Encouraged to see life both at work and outside it in much the same terms, the latter loses its potential to undermine the former in the way consumer uh, choices t tend to defer, uh, undermine deferred gratification. Both are arguably reconceived in the process so that they converge, not only with one another, but perhaps more importantly with finance-dominated corporate interests in maximum profitability. Whether at home, at the store, or at work, one should be the sort of person who, who assumes responsibility for making the most of what one has in pursuit of one's goals the ever greater achievement of self-realization and self-fulfillment. Put into more financialized terms, this is arguably indeed just a general cultural trend since the 1960s co-opted for finance-dominated purposes, one should make every effort in a self-directed way to maximize the profitable employment of the assets one has in one's person. Whether rich or poor, one has certain God-given talents, one can, in any case, aspire to acquire more lucrative capabilities through further education and training. All such assembled personal assets are to be put to maximally efficient use for the greatest possible profit in one's person, to maximize personal growth, to produce an ever-increasing GDP in one's person, one might say. One can exhibit this same sort of attitude towards oneself throughout the course of one's whole life, in preparing for adulthood, in the choice of one's spouse, in the running of a household, in every consumer purchase one makes, in taking out loans to further such pur pur purchases or finance extended education or training, uh, as well as at work. In each and every case, one assumes responsibility for enhancing the value of one's assets and putting them to work for one's own benefit in the most profitable possible fashion at, for example, the lowest possible extent. 
Gone are, any, er, gone are any arenas of life requiring from you any fundamentally different self-understanding and capable thereby of calling such a self-understanding into question. More than understanding one's life to require the efficient use of scarce resources in a self-interested pursuit of personal preferences, rather than considering oneself uh, homo economicus in short, here, one's here one considers one's very self to be a kind of economic property whose value is to be maximized by highly efficient employment by increasing productivity in one's labor on it. One's self is what one works on. One's self is what one adds value to by way of self-directed labor. And here I'm following what I think is the brilliant analysis of Michel Foucault in his uh, Birth of Biopolitics. One doesn't just have property in, one, in one's person in the form of labor power that one can sell to others for a wage. Under finance-dominated capitalism, the idea of having property in, one, in one's person now takes the more specific form of capital, an asset that is to be used to generate further profit with the proceeds or losses of such use returning to the owner. One takes up, in short, a peculiar sort of business relationship with oneself. It's a particular sort of business model that's being extended here over all the dimensions of one, one's life. One that therefore draws one's self-understanding into increasing alignment with how actual businesses are run in finance-dominated capitalism. Like the owner of a business, one has certain sunk costs that represent investments in oneself. One makes such investments in hopes of turning a profit, but at considerable risk and with no guarantees. In order to make that profit, what could be more reasonable than turning on oneself the maximizing posture of actual corporations disciplined by finance? Perhaps it is somehow also in one's own interest in fulfilling oneself to demand almost more from oneself than one could ever possibly deliver to work harder and harder to the point of near exhaustion in an effort to increase one's own worth to the max. Whether one ever starts up a business or not, one can run one's life like an entrepreneur, both owning and managing the assets of one's life for profit-maximizing purposes, taking the initiative to seize, to seize the moment in order to make the most of all available opportunities, showing the resourcefulness to make do oneself with what one has rather than depending on others to make one's way in the world. Although they're typically not owned and managed by a single person, by an actual entrepreneur, corporations themselves are typically now understood in the same terms. They're to exhibit the same sort of entrepreneurial spirit. Taking on such a relationship with oneself becomes all the more unquestionable as a business model like this extends over every sort of organized, institutionalized activity within finance-dominated capitalism. As I'm sure there's no need to remind people at a UK university, institutions of higher learning are coming to be managed, for example, as if they were private businesses charged with delivering services as cheaply and efficiently as possible. The upshot, I could go into that in more detail. Uh, the upshot, because I'm personally familiar, uh, the upshot of all this for the employment relationship is to bring the self-understanding self of employees 
into perfect alignment with the self-understanding of the firm employing them. I'm a business. The firm I work for is a business, just like me, managing its assets in the same way I do in the attempt to ensure maximum profitability. Indeed, my understanding of myself is identical with my employer's view of me, because we're both making use of the very same assets in our respective business ventures. The company I work for is a business trying to maximize its profits by the way I'm put to work. I'm trying to maximize the return on those same assets in my person by putting myself to work using much the same techniques, just not, not just at work, but everywhere else as a form of self-management. One's employer considers me human capital to be put to maximally profitable use at the least expense, and that is also how I see myself. My personal assets are my own human capital in the running of what I hope will be the enormously profitable business of my own life. It's hard, therefore, to criticize one's employer for seeing one that way. In each case, the assets of my person are being put to work in a manner designed to produce maximum profit. That simply seems to be what they're for. Of course, the maximally profitable use of my human capital by the firm I work for might not be maximally profitable for me, producing, therefore, in me a certain reluctance, even resistance, to being so used. Well, I think the corporation's efforts to capitalize on my assets won't come at the expense of my own such efforts. If one is simply thinking in monetary terms, that often, in fact, seems to be the case. Corporate revenues and profit margins go up, often way up, without being shared proportionately with employees in the form of increased wages and benefits. But management practices that allow employees to be self-directing in keeping with their own talents are in effect promising to maximize corporate profits only by way of employees' own efforts to maximize their human capital for their own purposes. The corporation stands to profit only if workers do, since it is only in and through the value-enhancing self-management practices of employees that profit for the corporation is generated to begin with. Rather than being, rather than simply being, an overworked and hard-pressed employee, I can consider myself to be running my own little business within a business that won't profit unless I do. If I fail in my efforts to enhance, to enhance my human capital in and through the work I perform, the profit-generating capacities of my human capital for the corporation will decline as well. Corporations have such an interest in fostering employees' sense of self-realization through work, not simply because it makes workers more efficient and lowers costs, but because it cements their commitment to their work. One can trust such employees to be totally invested in their work, hence my title, and therefore to give it their all. Personal commitment of that kind brings with it an unreserved, no-holds-barred commitment to the hard work uh, that companies demand. Employers, for these reasons, have an interest in one's person. That is, they're not simply interested in whether one can do the job, given one's current skill set, but in the attitudes one has with respect to work. Do you enjoy and find fulfillment in your work? How central is it to your life? Do you, for example, have family obligations that might draw your energies away from work? or outside hobbies that might align you with it, an avid skier to be tasked with selling skiing equipment. 
As much as the doing to be demonstrated in job performance, one's being, the character of one's, person's, one's person and fundamental dispositions is a primary matter for employer concern. The demands of the job are not to insert themselves simply at the level of temporarily induced behavior while on the job, leaving your person alone to daydream during its performance, or if that's not possible, to pursue other modes of living outside of it. Your very person, at the level of its most fundamental projects, is to become the insertion point for company profit-taking. Every employee must have an entrepreneurial self relating to oneself as an enterprise for profit if the company itself is to be profitable in the optimal way that finance demands. Of course, it's often hard to know for certain whether employees are really giving it their all, whether they're actually working at full capacity with total commitment to successful performance of the task at hand if they're genuinely working at their own discretion. Especially when tasks are complex and require teamwork, Individual effort is hard to quantify as it's happening and therefore tends to escape even the best low-cost computerized surveillance systems. This is indeed one reason for the shift of employer concern to the personal character of employees. Difficulties in monitoring behaviors of self-managing workers means their basic attitudes and intentions with respect to work become all the more important. One has to count on there being the sort of people who habitually and as a matter of principle give work their all, the sort of people who make it their own business, in a quite literal sense, to make creative use of all opportunities offered for innovative improvements in productive processes, maximally efficient use of all available resources, however meager, and so on. But how to be sure of any of that, apart from the character of their actual work performance? Interior dispositions, fundamental intentions, and desires are even harder to monitor than outward behaviors. Am I really committed to wanting what my employer wants from me or merely faking it? One's employer requires proof that one's commitment is genuine. Like a 17th century penitent, one must not only express regret for any lapse in performance, act contrite, but display one's tears. A more, help, a more heartfelt attrition in keeping with, a gen, with genuine love for any requests that have gone unfulfilled. While the company may constantly question the degree to which I genuinely love my work, it's equally hard to still suspicion about company intentions with respect to me. My work on myself is quite obviously being instrumentalized by the company as a means to its own ends of maximum profit. Treated as a means rather than an end, why shouldn't I suspect that the company's supposed respect for my qualities as a person and for my resourceful self-directing capacities as an agent is itself a mere sham and superficial show? Such suspicions are only heightened by the also very obvious fact that my commitment to my work will never be matched by the commitment of the company to me. However com committed I may be to my work, the company is always more than willing simply to use me up and throw me away whenever that seems expedient. Moreover, the more the demand for commitment to work is totalized, becomes everything, the harder it becomes to see it as anything more than an unduly restrictive narrowing of one's own entrepreneurial life project. 
Making lovely widgets might be part of such a life project, but one doesn't only want to want what one's employer wants from one. It's hard to see the desire to make those widgets as the whole of one's heart, heart's desires. The company can be kept from being the target of this potential disgruntlement and even the feeling itself stilled the more both worker and, the more both worker and employer seem at the mercy of wider forces beyond their control. The market, an inexorable and diffuse force, is calling the shots. The company, along with, along with its workers, has no choice but to follow the market's lead if any profits are to be had by anyone. Indeed, the strong impression is given that the market itself is managing the corporation. Rather than being the ultimate source of the free decision to manage workers in this particular way, the company is only following, in an almost reactive way, the market's own dictates. If the price of the company's stock falls, layoffs ensue. If orders slow by a certain percentage in a particular week, the next week sees a proportionate drop in the hours that employees will be asked to work. Whether you are asked to work, whether you are asked to work, and what you are asked to do simply mirror the ups and downs, the changing character of the market itself. Forced to mirror the market in their work lives in these ways, the only arena of freedom left to workers would seem to lie in the attitude they choose to assume towards it. The only, their working lives will conform to market dictates, whether they like it or not. They can either do so willingly and come to desire themselves what's an inevitability in any case, as the company would like, or doom themselves to aimless, untargeted dissatisfaction without hope of relief. That's no real choice. Uh, mirroring the market and taking satisfaction in that fact, one comes to completely identify oneself with it. I am the market, as successful investment bankers and traders in finance assert so often. <clears throat> I am no longer working on myself then simply for the sake of myself, but for something much bigger than I am and bigger than any company I work for. I'm driven beyond self-preoccupation by self-identification with the market itself, driven beyond myself in ways that only bring me into closer alignment with market forces. For all my self-initiating self-management, I'm self-evacuated as much as any call center operator of anything beyond what the market dictates so that the market seems to be extending its own life in and through me. Finance-dominated corporations typically combine all these ways of inducing unswerving conformity from employees. They use techniques of fear, love, and self-evacuation all at once to bring about compliance. Corporations no doubt do so with the expectation that these varying techniques will prove to be mutually reinforcing. In case exhaustion makes me question the intrinsic value to me of what I'm doing, whether I'm really finding self-satisfaction and working so hard both night and day, fear of demotion or job loss can step into the breach. On the other hand, the combination can make for an uneasy alliance. If my employer really has an interest in the free exercise of my own creative agency, why am I being constantly monitored at every step to make sure everything I do, in fact, serves company ends? 
If my own desires are really in perfect sync with those of my employer, why, moreover, do I find a gun at my head? I'm well aware that any failure in showing myself to be fully committed to my work could bring the hammer down at any time. Right? <laughs> uh, Christianity, yes. Christianity can enter here, I hope, uh, to help drive a wedge between my desires and the companies, interrupting the mechanisms for gaining the sort of total commitment required for maximum corporate profitability. Commitment to God and the conversion that brings uh, com commitment to God and the conversion that brings it about interfere with total commitment to anything else, thereby limiting the degree to which one could ever be completely personally invested in a company's aims. Commitment to God gains such a capacity, ironically, to the extent it amounts itself, one might say, to a life project with certain similarities to the enterprise self of finance-dominated capitalism. One should seize every opportunity at every moment over the course of one's entire life to be a person oriented to God. All that one is and everything one experiences, experiences should be considered the raw material for one's spiritual progress, the constant occasion for work on oneself that would draw one nearer to God in thanks and praise and into greater alignment with God's will for the world. Christianity is to promote, in short, a form of work on oneself in which one problematizes one's own piety with a maximizing intent. One is to make an issue of one's own religiousness in ways that turn that religiousness itself into a maximizing project. That is, one should be as religious as possible in the sense of directing oneself to God in thanks and praise and into alignment with God's will at every moment and in everything else one does, everything one does. In so doing, the formation of one's self-understanding as a Christian, how one relates to oneself as a Christian, turns into an ongoing life task determinative, determinative of one's entire person, making one simply the person one is. Living life Christianly comes to form the core of one's identity, something to which one is wholeheartedly committed, totally committed, in the sense that were one no longer engaged in such a project, one would no longer be the person one is. Orientation of oneself to God becomes so wholehearted just to the extent one's Christian commitments become both all-encompassing all and capable of unifying, bringing together every other desire one has. One must be constantly asking whether, and if so, how, all one's other pursuits fit into one's primary Christian commitment. By in some way appearing in everything else one goes on to do, Christian commitment would become in this way incorporative of every other more, main, every other more main, mundane desire, bending all such aims under its own purposes. The general mechanisms employed within Christianity to, to assure wholehearted commitment to God run radically contrary, however, to those used by finance-dominated capitalism to induce total <laughs> compliance. In keeping with the way God works God's own will in the world, such commitment is not, first of all, to be brought about by way of self-evacuation. In making a commitment to God, my aim is to bring what remains my will into deliberate correspondence with God's. Moreover, that requires no simple repudiation of my own will for fulfillment, 
since I, since I can be confident in Christ that God's will is also for my own good. God's desire is to save me. Conversion does involve the repudiation of what I have been, the sinner I am. But that sort of self-refusal or break with myself that I was emphasizing last time need not translate into self-evacuation before God or before anyone else. Dying to my old self, my old life of sin, requires not the death of my will per se and its replacement by another, by God's will or that of my religious superior, so that the latter is the only will I'm to have. It requires simply the turning around of my own will, the reversing of its direction. A will turned away from God is now, by virtue of new life in Christ, to be turned towards God. All that's to be put to death is the will's sinful orientation. Commitment to God by way, of such a conver- by, by way of such conversion does, however, complicate the integration of my, order, of my ordinary commitments into it. The two can never completely coincide in the way a company expects the aims of a worker to coincide with its own. Insofar as conversion continues into the present, as what I was calling last time, I think, an ongoing state of breaking with one's past, because that is sin is, because that is sin is, no over-and-done-with moment relegated to the past but always remains to be turned away from, every single present project of mine is to be repudiated to some extent or other. Some of them more, some of these, some of them more than others. Just to the extent such a present project, to be reputed, to be repudiated, just to the extent such a present project becomes a sinful interference to wholehearted orientation to God and God's will for the world. Indeed, making one's ordinary investments wholehearted, which is just to say excluding God from them, is often how such interference comes about. That very sort of investment in the ordinary is what one should be actively turning away from in the continual process of conversion that Christians are tasked with. Conversion, in short, requires a fundamental form of disinvestment in the ordinary pursuit of one's mundane desires. One should never be wholeheartedly committed to any ordinary pursuit in the way one is committed to God. A wholehearted commitment to God does bring with it a commitment to all the things that God is committed to, including my own good, care for the less fortunate, and so on. But the effort to be committed to anything else in that same wholehearted way will exclude God in a sinful distortion of one's dependence upon God for any furtherance even uh, of even those this worldly aims ordained by God. Indeed, simply the overarching comprehensive character of commitment to God encourages disinvestment in every other project or the totality of them. One can pursue a commitment to God in and through every other commitment one has, although how one does so might take very different forms, and therefore none of them is of any irreplaceable significance. No particular task or life project has a monopoly in supplying occasions for orienting oneself to God and God's will. One can orient oneself to God, try to bring oneself into alignment with God's will, whatever one's circumstances, whatever one's job, whatever the task one has been saddled with. The specific form of one's orientation to God may vary with circumstances, but the intensity of God-directed focus can and should continue with the same constancy across them all. 
the good that one does for oneself and others, the good that one experiences oneself from others, can easily become, for example, the occasion for praising and rejoicing in God's beneficence, while the harm that one does to others can, be become, can become the material for equally intense Godward self-direction in the form of confession, contrition, and repentance, and an ultimate refusal to comply. The harm one is suffering at the hands of others might issue in heartfelt pleas for divine help to get one, to help one get oneself out of it, if that be God's will, and so on. We're running a little late here. Uh, because a Christian life project is to be carried across any and all of one's other pursuit, pursuits, it encourages one to distance oneself from any particular social role and occupational task. One's Christian identity does not require one to assume any other socially defined role or task. The Christian stakes in any particular person defining social role are quite low. For that reason, the task of orienting oneself to God that constitutes one's Christian identity is never collapsible into any one or even the totality of such social roles. Indeed, it's to follow one across every different role and task one might be asked to perform. The Christian self-project is not itself, therefore, one among the other ordinary tasks and roles one could perform, and for that reason needn't, in principle, erase or push out the other identities one assumes in the course of other pursuits, incorporating them instead in a relativizing fashion. One remains what one is in virtue of the various roles and tasks one has undertaken, but these identities that distinguish one from others are reworked within a project of God orientation to provide one with a new identity in and through them. They all become the mere matter, given form in Christ and in that sense overridden or written over. As the particular person one is, one's life takes on the character of Christ. One's life turns into the project of leading a God-directed life as his was, by virtue of the power of Christ's spirit within one, providing the principle for one's thoroughgoing self-reformation. Despite sharing such project with others and therefore assuming a common identity with them in Christ, one retains one's particular identity. One is just this particular person, as that's established by one's having assumed just this combination of mundane roles and tasks, leading such a life project of God direction. But in its capacity to encompass and reform all the others, one's identity in Christ becomes one's primary one. Everything else that one has become is seen through Christ, and only in that way am I justified and sanctified. God's judgment on my sin is averted and forgiveness gained, for example, because my identity in Christ trumps what I have otherwise made of myself. Christianity enjoins then a particular sort of malleability, the capacity to make oneself over, the ultimate end being conformity with God, and calls one to identify oneself with that capacity. One is created in the image of God because unlike other creatures, one has the oddly open capacity to become, not, it's not simply an excellent human being, but something like God who is wholly different from any of God's creatures. Because, however, the way one's identity in Christ comprehensively reworks all one's other identities, that identity, that Christian identity doesn't erase differences among spheres in the way the single normative framework of asset maximization does. 
One doesn't increase capacities for God direction simply by collapsing every other project into it and replacing every other normative framework with its own in the way, say, norms of public service are replaced by profit-maximizing ones once an enterprise self becomes one's unifying, all-encompassing identity. Although relativized, the other pursuits that fall under one's God project could, of course, remain valuable in and of themselves. Presumably, one is pursuing them because one thinks they have a part to play in God's own mission of service to the world's good. They're part of one's effort to align one's own will with that of God. But that value to oneself and others is not in itself a stopping point, a self-contained value apart from such efforts to to align oneself with God in the way that being wholly and entirely invested in their attainment per se would seem to require. Because no one pursuit has monopoly on God direction, directedness towards God is not... uh, directly brought about, never simply dependent upon the successful achievement of any particular mundane one, even were that mundane pursuit, say, the feeding of the hungry, part of an effort to further the kingdom of God in this world. One can orient oneself to God whatever the tasks imposed on one, even when those tasks are appropriately God-directed, whatever one's success or failure in undertaking them. This is not simply because if one fails in one venture, there is always another to take its place. If the poor remain hungry, one can find some other way to align one's will with God in the attempt to further God's kingdom. What's more, one's God project can be furthered despite the failure of each and every mundane one. There is simply no direct relationship between the successful pursuit of mundane projects and successful God orientation. This is in part because God will make up the difference. One is unsuccessful in eliminating poverty, and one is not indifferent to that failure, but one can leave it to God to bring in a kingdom, leave it to God to bring in a kingdom without poverty, nonetheless. Moreover, these very failures themselves can be God-directed. One fails to be completely successful in eradicating poverty, but remains Godward in lament, repentance, and hope for greater success in renewed efforts. Here, mundane projects do not build up. They don't add up in any cumulative way like a capital asset so as to incrementally further one's life project of orienting oneself to God. Not even the successful use of such mundane projects for purposes of God orientation provides such a bankable asset. The fact one repented and sought forgiveness yesterday is of no account if one doesn't do the same thing today. One is always, therefore, in some significant sense, starting over at each moment, assuming the task of conversion afresh, however steady one's God direction up until that point has been. Because one remains a sinner, saved despite oneself in Christ, repeated lapses in one's God-directedness are in any case to be expected. Progress in one's religious life project rarely displays a constancy in which, in which present successes be, build seamlessly on past ones. This needn't, however, be a focus for worry. Because one's progress is assured through the grace of Christ within one, one can cast one cares, one's cares ultimately upon God, who is ultimately responsible for, for carrying them to successful completion. 
One has the grace of Christ in ways that one's continuing sin does not threaten. One is saved as a sinner. One remains by virtue of Christ's grace. Christ and his spirit provide the ever-available motor for making oneself over from sinner to saint, even though that transition is never complete in this life. Because it represents an absolute change (coughs) from life without Christ to life with him, and yet one not threatened by the ups and downs of one's own religious life as some purported change from sinfulness to blamelessness would be, conversion does not set into motion a juridical form of self-examination concerned about the least lapse in what one expects to be a seamless growth towards (coughs) saintliness. While one has an interest, no doubt, in making progress in saintliness, Gone is any anxiety-fed need for constant self-monitoring in the way finance-dominated capitalism would like (coughs) to to assure one is indeed making every effort and striving towards complete godwardness. (coughs) And one confesses one's faults neither so as to exhibit a soul-denying submission before one's religious superior nor primarily for purposes of keeping a record of lapses in progress towards conformity with God's will, but as an expression of humility before the God upon whose grace one depends for any and all progress one makes oneself. Rather than being tallied against one's account, one can be assured one's sins are forgiven, their burden erased, when casting them upon Christ's mercy through confession. Without the anxiety that comes from overinvestment in mundane tasks, one is able to act with a certain detachment towards them, as though one were not what one is in fact doing. One is able, for example, to act as an employee as if one weren't. That certainly means the tasks one undertakes at work cannot be taken to exhaust one's identity and shouldn't be pursued in any all-consuming fashion that would suggest as much. It also means reminding oneself that one's Christian commitments trump others, and not in a Donald sort of way. The fact that one's Christian commitments are to be relevant in every circumstances means one must constantly question whether, and if so exactly how, what one is asked to do is genuinely compatible with those Christian commitments they might not, in fact, be so compatible. Continuing to own a payday loan company, for example, is not, I think, so compatible. Working as though not does not necessarily mean, however, although it could, that one suspects such tasks are not worth doing with an eye to ones that might bring greater satisfaction, that one, no, that one suspects such tasks are not worth doing with an eye to ones that might bring greater satisfaction. One might well find satisfaction in such pursuits, which provide thereby reasons for thanks and praise to God. But the point in that case is is not to find satisfaction solely in them, but to glorify God in thanks and praise by way of them. One is to that extent distanced from such satisfactions at some fundamental level, indifferent to their genuine charms, in that whatever the degree of those charms, 
one is oriented by way of them to what lies beyond them. Oriented beyond all mundane pursuits and the satisfactions they bring in and of themselves, this is a peculiar self-project in that the self is neither its ultimate object nor the ultimate motor of its attainment. One participates in a project <coughs> in which God brings one to God. Foucault, Michel Foucault, is therefore wrong, I think, to assume that all such projects of self-fashioning by definition, and therefore in the Christian case as well, make the self the primary object of the practice. According to him, one is, for example, either to evacuate oneself in Christianity or prove the master of oneself in Stoicism. Lots of projects of self-fashioning, platonic, stoic-inflected ones, promise to distance one from oneself, from the ordinary subject of conventional roles and tasks. But they tend to do so by getting one to see oneself from the wider perspective of the whole. Pierre Hadot makes this point. Turn from one's limited reason, the partial perspective of self-interest that would make external harms to oneself something to be lamented, to the reason of the universe that directs the whole and everything in it for the good. In Stoicism. Such forms of self-transcendence merely bring one into resigned, undisturbed alignment with what Christianity views as a finite and fallen world. <clears throat> Instead, from a Christian viewpoint, God, who is not the world, is what one should be made over into, one's own desires brought into perfect alignment with God's will for that world, now fallen into sin and needing a renewal as deep as its original creation a kind of recreation. The sin that runs rampant in oneself and in the world as one knows it is what stands in the way of all that. Conformity to God thereby interrupts all desires for conformity with the cosmos, which in our, which in our own day amounts to the wider world of the market. What I've shown then is the way Christianity can re-envision and thereby contest the sort of subject that finance-dominated capitalism encourages for its own purposes of profit maximization. The point where finance-dominated capitalism inserts itself into people's lives is also its place of vulnerability. If, as Foucault might say, were he to have addressed this particular trajectory of neoliberalism since his death, finance-dominated capitalism tries to conduct in quite thoroughgoing ways the conduct of others, conduct that takes the form, in this case, of other people's projects of self-formation in an all-out effort to get the most out of them. But in that very process, it leaves itself open to challenge. Such forms of self-fashioning are always at least potentially open for redirection in ways that finance-dominated capitalism cannot countenance. Resistance of that sort by way of the very demand for self-formation that finance-dominated capitalism enforces becomes in that way specific to the particular way one is being controlled in finance-dominated capitalism. It turns the very thing that's intended to further finance-dominated interests against it. The Christian character of that counter-conduct is significant. Foucault recognized <coughs> that the sort of Christian subject formation that fed into contemporary ways of controlling conduct, self-surveillance for the sake of total obedience to one's religious superiors, juridically informed projects of self-improvement, 
based on post-baptismal expectations of perfection and so on, did not exhaust Christianity and resurfaced with a vengeance, particularly at the time of the Reformation, to contest Christian ways of conducting the conduct of others by such means. What I've shown is the continued relevance of such Christian forms of counterconduct for contesting not just Christian forms of conducting the conduct of others, but the finance-dominated capitalism that transmutes and extends such techniques into the present. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'd just like to um, thank the committee and uh, the professor for encouraging me to relook at my sociology books <laughs> of about 35 years ago. And in that, I uh, looked up uh, the Dex Weber and then had a look around in the book. And uh, the, the author, Professor Worsley, um, of 1980 time, uh, had a chapter on work and organizations, uh, which you have covered uh, very specifically. I'm whether, wondering whether or not in your future lectures you will regard Christianity's uh, division into uh, different ways or, or look at org Christianity's organizations and uh, how they have developed and the techniques they have used and whether or not uh, the individual has conformed to them and but is now able to uh, get a freedom that uh, frees that, uh, I suppose, goals of those organizations to develop spiritually. Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, the, the last lecture will talk some about Christian community formation <coughs> and how the principles of community formation might be different from the way uh, organizations are typically uh, managed um, according to the kind of business model that I'm talking about here. So yeah, I will address that, and I think that's a crucial question. But I'm afraid it'll wait till the last lecture primarily. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Tana. Um, I usually judge uh, how good a lecture is by how much uh, my head hurts me at the end of it and how much thought I have to be putting into. So thank you very much. Um, just a question of the, quist, uh, the Christian's uh, attitude towards stewardship, uh, looking out for the poor, and being loyal to your master, and also the one area where somebody said the poor will, will be with us always. I mean, how do we balance all of that with <coughs> the capitalist kind of approach to life and working life? I mean, putting all those into it. Sorry, thanks. Yeah, no, you're very right that often... Uh Christian discussions of the sort of thing that I'm talking about uh, suggest that, I mean, use economic language, you know, that God is, say, loaning you certain resources, 
they're not yours, you don't actually own them, they're a loan to you, <coughs> with the uh, intent being to use those resources as God wants you to use them, so being a good steward of them. Uh, I'm trying to avoid that way of looking at things because I think it's too close to what you're already, you know, the, what you're typically being asked to do, kind of in a heightened form, within uh, finance-dominated capitalism. So, on that religious way of looking at things, <coughs> your person is loaned too. I mean, like everything about you is loaned uh, because you're the creature of God. You don't, you don't own yourself. You're kind of renting it, if you want. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to avoid that altogether. In part because it just suggests, well, as, as I mean, I don't think you're only saying this, but uh, you know, it suggests, well, you've got a similar sort of model from looking at yourself. You know, you've been given these resources, you're to use them wisely, and then there's just a difference of opinion as to what that wise use involves. You know, does it involve, say, philanthropic <coughs> giving, or doesn't it? And that seems to me to be too limited uh, a form of contest with say, <coughs> forms of contemporary capitalism that suggest that, you know, uh, I don't know whether you have ex- this expression in Scotland, but, you know, every boat is on its own bottom. You know, you're responsible for your own well-being. You know, you've been given resources yourself. You know, you're the creature of God, too. You know, they might not be quite as good as somebody else with well, know, better, you know, greater personal assets. But, you know, it's your responsibility to use them wisely. If you, use them, if you screw up and use them badly, well, then, you know, you just have yourself to blame, and I don't really have to help you because, you know, look, you were given what you, were, what you needed. I mean, not that Christians want to go that way, but it's, it's very easy for Christians to go that way. <clears throat> and in the United States, often uh, evangelical Christians go that way. I don't have a responsibility to help you. you know, we're all helping ourselves in virtue of what God has given each of us. Uh, so I was just noticing the kind of highly partitioned language between employee and employer or manager or company. Um, also, worker and employee on one side, company, manager on the other side. Um, and it strikes me that often, obviously, these are the same people. Yep, um, definitely. And, and so I was kind of reflecting on that because that, I, didn't, I didn't really hear that coming out. And I thought it might almost <coughs> further the entanglement of self with company. Yep. Um, that you were talking about. No, I didn't uh, have time <clears throat> to give the examples, but I mean, I mentioned like a call center, and then I mentioned like uh, investment bankers. Obviously, they're not. You know, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you can talk about almost anybody as uh, <clears throat> an employee, um, whatever their level within management. Uh, I'm trying right. to suggest that everybody is being subject to the same. Pressures, although one could uh, argue that those in top management, it's easier for them to just identify themselves with their jobs and with the market, with the firm and with the market, uh, because uh, it's easier to think that one's own projects of self-realization match the company's desire so and profit. I'm wondering if, as a quick follow-up... If, because um, you're paid more. Right. <laughs> yeah. If, if ah, the sorry, company if consciousness then becomes a group consciousness mm-hmm. with maybe the people at the top giving a larger chunk. A larger chunk of thing, of of, um, of their, uh, sorry, a larger determining power as to what that company's 
agency as a company goes like? Uh, or if you think it, it doesn't? depends. You know, sometimes top managers have quite a bit of control. Sometimes they don't. Uh, I mean, I was suggesting that there's always an illusion that, I mean, number one, uh, management has been cut to the bone. That's part of the cost-cutting measure. That's why you want employees to be self-managing so they don't have to be managed by others. So you don't have these huge tiers of you know, middle, lower management, middle management, upper management. You just get rid of the management, except for maybe you know, somebody's got to be in there with a managerial role. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, you cut uh, management, but... Um, I think I've lost your question here. Uh, uh, company consciousness oh, as yeah. a whole. Company consciousness. Uh, yeah. I mean, somebody tends to be... I mean, I've been saying... Well, the, the second point is that the, even when you have uh, very overt management, there's an effort to suggest that it, we're just following the dictates of the market, as I was suggesting. You know, so we don't need to come up with some incredible you know, creative management plan. We just do whatever the market is telling us to do. Uh, a chief example being, and I think this is increasingly common, you know, you look at your customer orders. I mean, it can be a stock market direction, but it can be just customer orders. Customer orders are going down. Well, even if you don't, you don't even wait to see how long the customer orders will go down, whether this is an ex- extended trend, you just immediately react to it by cutting your work- workforce, closing a store, or not bringing people into work as much. You know, you have people on contract where they work very, very flexible hours, and that's what the flexible hours are determined by. Uh, you know, they're tracking customer orders. So in the United States, for example, I don't know, the weather was bad in uh, December, and Macy's did, a very big department store in the United States, did much lower than average business. And rather than just sort of waiting it out, you know, well, let's make a management decision about how we should react to that, rather than making, you know, Assuming responsibility for making the decision itself, uh, some decision itself, you already assumed the decision was made for you by the downturn in uh, consumer uh, purchasing. And then they just cut stores. You know, they just closed stores, they cut workforce, you know. And the impression is, well, we didn't have any choice in this matter. It wasn't our doing. Customer orders went down. You know, what are we supposed to do about that? Even though they would recognize that it was (laughs) weather-related. That seems crazy. Uh, I mean, it seems crazy, crazy if you were taking personal responsibility for managing your workforce rather than just saying, well, the market told us what to do. Thank you. I wanted to say thank you, first of all, for what was the most appropriate sermon for the Feast of the Ascension, I think, that I've heard for a long time. Um, and you got me thinking. Um, it was really interesting that that moment of God orientation, that supreme moment of God orientation, we still call... Um, the baptismal covenant rather than the baptismal contract. And I wondered if you could reflect a moment upon how God's <coughs> description of God's relationship with humanity has always been in covenant terms as opposed to contractual terms. Yeah, well, that's a very interesting point. I mean, if, if you see the development of covenant theology, it also is in tandem with the development of contracts, like work contracts, other forms of contract, credit contracts, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not clear that covenant language is actually not contractual. I mean, it can be developed in a non-contractual fashion, but actually it develops alongside ideas of contract and often simply reflects contract. So, like the uh, stewardship idea. Uh, not exactly, you know. 
God has given you certain things on loan. It's a contract. God gave you these things. The contract means you're to do uh, the appropriate thing with what you've been loaned. And if you don't do it, it'll be forfeited. Uh, I.e., God won't save you, or bad things will happen to you, or any number of other things. Uh, <clears throat> it's a covenant. It's just a contract. It's just very much like a, a you know, a two-way contract. You know, grants, duties, you know. But there are other understandings of contract that aren't like that. I mean, other understandings of covenant that aren't like that. Often unilateral uh, covenants are not like contracts because they don't bring with them a kind of mutual obligation on the part of God and uh, those God is covenanting with. And I think that's the appropriate understanding of covenant. But often it's not developed that way in Christian thought. Thank you. Uh, would you allow me to push back against your imagery there? Um, Which? I mean, as, Which as, imagery? An, as an observer of uh, the, the, the finance capitalism and so on, and somebody who saw and learned a lot from um, the big short, by the way, yep. which I highly recommend. Yep. Um, but the term commitment doesn't seem to me to come to mind when I, when I look at that. It, it, the, the terms that come to mind are, are selfism, you know, of, of in it for yourself, and um, you don't really have time or energy for anybody else, which doesn't yeah, with that. About, and, and the other is short-termism. Yeah. That is yeah, to say, sure. you, aren't, you aren't caring what's over the horizon, your yeah, yeah, yeah. short-term profit, short-term stocks, and so on. So how would you put commitment with that kind because of selfish short-termism? spheres. I mean, the market, markets work in different ways. I'll be talking about short-termism and uh, nothing but the, under that nothing but the present. But here I'm talking specifically about employment relationships. And uh, yeah, I mean there's a short-termism that's characteristic of them too in that you don't, you know, you're not guaranteed employment for a life or anything like that. And to the contrary, you might be fired tomorrow for all you know. Uh, But I will talk about short-termism and things like that. All that I'm talking about here is what... uh, Employers seem to be increasingly requiring from their employees in in a corporate context, which I'm calling total commitment. Yeah, but clearly there, there's lots of other stuff going on, and I'll talk about that in later lectures. I agree with you completely. The, the only other the, the only other observation I would make uh, uh, quickly is that perhaps the higher education area is the only area in which you do not cut back on managers; you actually hire more managers as time goes on. Yeah, but the uh, yeah no that is a possible difference. The but uh, there are lots of similarities, many more similarities and differences would appear to be very similar business model being applied across the board in the United States, uh, uh, particularly uh, when you're talking about it, uh, institutions of higher education that are controlled by um, state governments because state government has already been altered in accordance with this sort of business model that I've been describing. So it seems very natural to extend it to publicly funded uh, bodies of higher education. And, I mean, an easy parallel is that uh, just the way in which, uh, you know, the very top management is making a lot of money in finance-dominated corporations tends to be the case that administrators make much more money than faculty members who uh, lead an increasingly insecure, have a very insecure 
tenure, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there are plenty of similarities. We could talk about that. But you're right, that there seems to be a multiplication of administrative functions within education in ways that isn't so typical in finest dominated capitalism. Yes, I would agree. I was just wondering, Professor Tanner, um, if I'm totally committed to God, I cannot be totally committed to the financed, determined capitalism. Yes, I think so. If uh, what goes against my Christian principles, the company will dispense with my services yep. and I will end up poor. We talk about how we help the poor, but what yep. if you are the, the one problem. that is poor? How do you cope? Yeah. Uh, no, that's a very, very good question. <laughs> yes, if you're a resistant subject in a corporation that is requiring total commitment from you, yeah, you're, you're going to be threatened with being fired or not hired at all. Uh, I'm not sure I know what to do about that. On the other hand, what I'm suggesting is that even if you had to take a job that required total commitment from you, all you need to show is the appearance of total commitment, which is all anybody actually demonstrates anyway. Uh, so uh, I'm telling you to distance yourself from your work, which would mean that if you, there came a time when you could quit, then do it. I've if done that. Thank you much. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, Thank you very much, uh, Professor Tanner, for those responses to questions as well as for the lecture. It just remains for me to, to close the lecture and to uh, in, invite people to return on, on Monday for the continuation of this series. Thank you very much. Thank you.